0: Good morning, glad you're here at Rivermont today and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter 13. Consider our Advent series today with looking for love. Last week we looked for hope and we found it in Jesus's reign over all of life. And today as we look for love, we find it in Jesus's love for us that is in turn to be given away one to another. Our passage today is frequently read at wedding services as an explanation of what love truly is. And certainly in 1 Corinthians 13, we find a a description of marital love, but it's not narrowly about marital love. But instead, it's about our love for one another as the body of Christ, how we care for one another and more prominently how Jesus has cared for us. Perhaps like our church, the Corinthian church was full of achievers and they considered themselves spiritual and advanced. But the church in Corinth had a misplaced confidence. It was placed in gifts rather than in what mattered most. And that is love. What do we lean upon to make ourselves feel spiritual today? What is it that gives us an assurance that God is alive and God is at work here in our body? Is it the presence of activity, the presence of gifts? Perhaps there's more excellent way. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Down to verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Father, as we worship You today, waiting for the Lord Jesus to return, we confess that we are looking for love. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to find it in the love of Christ today. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, earlier this year, back in February, our family performed the American pilgrimage to Orlando. But rather than worshipping at the land of Mickey, we went to Universal Studios where Harry Potter lives. And it was the children's Christmas present to go down and visit... A Harry Potter world on this trip, and we had a great time. The way that Universal has built it with the Hogwarts School and recreated Diagon Alley, the major city center from the stories, it's just tremendous. And you walk down these streets, and if you like Harry Potter, you feel like you've been transported into that world. And yet, along with great joy, there was a bit of disappointment. There's one particular place our family was looking forward to visit and it comes from the books and we've seen it in the films and it was Fred and George Weasley's joke shop. We saw it in the movies. We had in our minds imagine what it should be like. So in we went to the joke shop and quickly the bubble burst. For all of its promise and architecture on the outside, when we went in, there wasn't much to it. There were ladders and staircases to upper floors that didn't exist. There were doorways that led nowhere. There were windows to rooms that were just paintings. The whole point, the whole place was a facade. It was dressed up outside with glitz and promise, but it was a bitter disappointment to us on the inside. That might describe our lives too, all too often. The way we look on the outside may be a cleverly built facade intending to cover up the emptiness that we feel within. Certainly that way in the church in Corinth. In this book, this letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul helps us to see some clear pictures, some some goals, some images of what the people of God truly are. We're being built up into a dwelling place of God. We've been given gifts to lay down our lives and serve one another and serve the world But how do we know when it's working? How do we define success? How do we know God's blessing rests on our lives and our ministries? How do we know the results of God's work within us? And it's not just a facade on the outside. Paul gives us some very clear hints to answer that question here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And the first hint to answer how do we know when God is at work is that activity does not equal blessing. Activity, work, uh, things that we're doing, programs among the people of God doesn't equal the blessing of God. Look at verses 1-3 to where Paul makes a, a list of spectacular gifts and accomplishments that the Corinthian church would have respected. These are the visible gifts, the exciting gifts, the gift of prophecy. That means that the word of God is authoritatively delivered. It's a gift of knowledge. The ability to understand the deep mysteries of God. Speaking in tongues that the world might know of the love of Christ. Having faith through which God does things that are seemingly impossible. These are exciting gifts, aren't they? They're exciting ministries. And if you look at a church where God's Word is proclaimed, where God's Word is, is, is marked with considerable eloquence and efficiency, and the people of God are known to have tremendous faith... What could possibly be wrong with that picture? Well, Paul says that all of those things could be present and it amount to nothing. He says in verse 3, all of these amazing things could be done and yet without love, he says, they are useless. He compares the presence of all of these spectacular gifts as someone speaking with the tongues of men and angels. It's like gongs and cymbals. He means that even if men's hearts should be stirred with all of the fanfare and the eloquence of men and angels and yet have not love, it's no better than empty sounds and noise. It's all noise and no substance. Our lives can appear so good and right and filled with God's success on the outside and yet we know that sometimes we feel completely empty on the inside, don't we? What Paul is forcing us to see here is that it's not so much the what, the external results, the things that are happening that reveal the hand of God at work, but rather it is in the how, how we do these things, how we exercise these things, the character that is formed in us as we use our gifts. That reveals and demonstrates God at work. Perhaps a different way to say it is this. That the measure of God's blessing can be seen in the way we love and serve one another. The way that relationships are restored. Let's see how present is love as we exercise and use our tremendous gifts. You have to know that when much of the Christian world thinks about us, when they read these first three verses, they don't think nice things. Maybe it's, not true of Rivermont in particular, I hope not, but of Presbyterians in general, it certainly is true that we're the frozen chosen, right? We have all the answers nailed down just right, and yet we can be cold and heartless. I hope it's not true of us, but we Presbyterians and Reformed folk have acquired that reputation the old-fashioned way. We've earned it. We're liable to the charge that we get our doctrine down, Pat, and we can teach it and we can consider all the systemic implications. And yet, sometimes that knowledge doesn't lead us toward love. And certainly we have a tendency to express that knowledge without love. Sometimes, as Presbyterians, we are right and we're angry about it as the world looks upon us. And yet true knowledge, as we truly consider these truths of the doctrines of grace, the true knowledge of God leads us to humility before His face and before one another. Because as this knowledge is revealed, His people are changed by that knowledge. May we not be selfish and prideful in our theology, but instead may we be shaped more and more into the character of the Lord Jesus who loves us and has given Himself for us. Our knowledge should lead us to humility. Our knowledge should lead us to love. I wonder if that's true in our discipleship, our our disciple making. Do we recognize that there is an emotional element to being shaped into the image of Christ? There is an emotional element to it. If we teach worldview and doctrine and yet it doesn't affect a character of love, then we fail in our discipleship. Same's same is true in the way that we equip our children. As they learn about Jesus, as they learn about who He is and begin to know the Word of God, are they being shaped to have eyes and a heart for the outcast, for the marginalized, for the one who's left behind? If not, then we're failing in the way we teach them the Scriptures. As we equip our children... And, and, and teach them about God's world. Is our instruction of them driving them toward the expression of love? Or does it leave them feeling the freedom to bully others? Being confident in what they know. Feeling elitist and superior. Absent of love. That's the way we're equipping our children. Then we're failing. These things don't necessarily reveal God at work all of these gifts all of these magnificent gifts present if they don't in themselves reveal God at work what does Paul's answer is love look again at verses four through seven love is patient and kind love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude it does not insist on its own way It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. What we find in the Scriptures, what we find written for us here, is a love that pursues other people. A love that is willing to lay down its own life to pursue others. And yet if we hear those verses primarily as a guide for our behavior, then frankly you're never going to embody it. If you hear this as first of all a call of what to do, rather than how it has been done unto you, then you're never going to manage to love this way yourself. What I'm saying is this. If we see our duty to love before we have seen how we have been loved by Jesus, we will never be made into loving people. How do we see that here? Well, verse 5 says, love is not resentful. Or as the NIV translates verse 5, love keeps no record of wrong. No record of every selfish or evil thing another person does and make them pay back for it. The word draws forth the image of accounting. You know, we have to to manage what goes out versus what comes in. I am really appreciative of Ellen in a business office here at the church. She keeps the staff on track most of the time. And we keep in guard how much we've spent versus how much we've received. That's just solid accounting. But it's a terrible way to attempt relationships. Keeping a record of wrongs ensures that every wrong gets repaid. No lack of kindness unreturned. It's difficult, don't you think, to establish a a relationship of loving trust if we are preoccupied with if somebody has hurt me, then I have to pay them back. If someone has damaged my reputation, then I have to damage theirs. If they've gossiped about me and hurt me in the eyes of the city, then maybe I should do the same to them. If someone has taken something from me that I really want, then they're going to have to feel the pain of loss that I feel. It's keeping a record of wrongs. But we've not been loved that way. That's not the way of love because that's not how Jesus has loved us. When we read verses 4-7 to seven in English, it describes the qualities of love. But in the original Greek, those are all verbs. Love acts. Love Envy's not. Love strives not. Love heaps praise not on itself. Love doesn't puff itself up. In a sense, Paul is personifying love. He's ascribing to love the behaviors of a person. Why? Because they speak of a character, and it's the character of Jesus and how He loves us. That's what's described in verses 4 to 7. It's in the Lord Jesus that we find the character of one who embodies how Paul describes love here. Certainly Jesus keeps no record of wrongs against us, but rather He gives grace to the unworthy. He doesn't give grace to the worthy. There aren't any. He doesn't give grace to achievers. He gives grace. He extends His love without regard to our being worthy. His grace is given to you and to me, sinners, who are rebels. He pursues the unworthy in love, which is so astoundingly different from how we too often love We love, we are patient with, we abide with, we are kind with, we are gentle with those whom we are most like and those whom we deem the most worthy. Most often that's people who are just like us. But all too often we consider those of a different color, a different race, a different ethnicity, a different person whom we deem has no right to be here. They're not worthy of pursuing in love. Surely, if anything, the Incarnation demonstrates in verse 4 that Jesus left His throne above and took on flesh. He was born in the dirt. He wasn't striving to assert Himself. He left heaven to live among us as one taking on our flesh, not keeping praise upon Himself, not puffing Himself up. He patiently bore with our lives and He did not resent leaving His throne in heaven. He was kind, and that word speaks to being merciful and loving just as Jesus is toward us when we rebelled against Him. He loves us even now when we continue to rebel because He loves the unworthy. And the only kinds of persons there are in this world are unworthy people. He bears patiently with us on the cross, not counting our sins against us, but instead taking our sins, taking our offensive, taking our rebellion upon Himself. Love is best seen in the cradle and the cross. The Lord Jesus took on Himself our limitations, our flesh, and did it all in the shadow of a cross where He was going to die in our place. The love of Jesus, the pursuing love, is the kind that bears all things, verse 7. It covers over our sin with a gracious love. And He's willing to forgive us at the cost of His own blood. Because the love of Jesus is tenacious. It pursues us. It pursues the dark parts of our hearts. And He knows and He forgives all those places that we desperately try to keep hidden from one another. If you're here this morning and you are looking for love... If you're looking to be known as you truly are in love, then the only place you're going to find it completely is in Jesus. The one who holds love and grace that are extended to the unworthy. He's the only one who fully and perfectly and completely loves the unworthy. If you're looking for love like that in this life, you have to first look To how you've been loved by Jesus. But don't stop there. Keep going. Because if we do recognize that kind of love. That that a perfect and holy and infinite God. Loves us and pursues the unworthy. So completely like that. Then you and I are going to be filled up. To turn and give that love away to other people. Why? Because love coming back to us. Isn't what fills up our hearts. We can love and give and continue to pour out our lives because it isn't love that comes back that fills those empty places in our souls. It's Jesus' love for us that does that. And so we can give and we can love. We may pursue the unworthy even if nothing comes back to us because it doesn't matter to us in our souls if it comes back. We're filled up by the love of Jesus so we are enabled to empty ourselves for other people. Jonathan Edwards wrote on this passage that love is putting our happiness in the happiness of another. I think that's a wonderful definition of what love truly is. Love puts into practice an other regard. It lives with that dynamic of the welfare of another people. Even when it costs me something, that's true happiness. Love like that is the love that Jesus has given to you and to me, and He calls on us to in turn love one another in that way. What might it look like? Well, loving as we've been loved by Jesus may look like a willingness to lay aside your preferences in order to benefit another person. I wonder what preferences you're being called to lay aside this holiday season. Specifically, what preferences holiday tradition, what Christmas tradition is in your family that you may need to lay aside this year because it makes a guest feel uncomfortable. Love is willing to lay aside our preferences in order to benefit another. Love looks like rather than taking offense when someone says something offensive, it seeks to forgive and love and pursue relationship anyway. Now, I don't know about you, but around my table at every holiday, someone is going to say something dumb, right? <laughs> someone is going to say something offensive. What do we do with that? Do we seek to pay them back? Or in love, are we able to overlook an offense? Love looks like refusing to jump to conclusions about people or circumstances but instead is long-suffering and bears patiently and is willing to listen to one another. Love looks for the joy in someone else's eyes. Love seeks the smile on someone else's face rather than on ours when we get our own way. Love seeks in kindness not to attack those who've attacked us. Love seeks not to attack those with whom we disagree or punish them in our anger or our judgment but instead give them kindness and gentleness whose attack do you need to return with kindness this christmas season our love for one another friends should be a taste it should be an appetizer of the love of jesus for other people the way the world and the way that our neighbors, the way that our family, the way that our friends will experience Jesus here, the way that we'll have a Christian life that isn't, isn't a facade, it's not hollow and empty, the way it's going to happen is to ask Jesus to show us how to give away the love that we've received from Him. Our gifts are to be spent by laying our lives down to serve others. Because friends, love is the proof in the pudding of our Christian life. Christian faith. As we celebrate Advent, I hope that you can recognize the love of God in your life, the love of a holy God lavished upon the unworthy, the sinner, the rebellion. And I ask, are you willing to take a step and shine the light of that love on the people around you? I wonder what people experience here at Rivermont when you come through the doors. Do you experience a glimpse or a taste of Of the love of Jesus. We're not going to love one another perfectly. We never can But do we have a taste? Do we provide one another a longing? A being pulled further in. To the hope of a love that's perfect. And complete. From the Lord Jesus Christ. If we seek to love one another that way. This Christmas season. Then we will be led along the pathway. Toward the cross. Where we lay down our lives. So that others may feel loved. That's what Jesus has done for us. While we were yet sinners. He was born for us. And he died for us. Let's ask him to help us live for him today. Let's pray. Father we thank you that you are indeed. A loving and gracious and kind God. And we ask that you would open our hearts. That we would be enabled to love one another as we've been loved. Show us where we specifically need to lay aside a preference or overlook an offense or believe the best of someone rather than jump to a conclusion or seek the smile on someone else's face even when it costs me something. Help us, O Lord, to love as we've been loved. In Jesus' name, amen.